My name is Billy. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Reality Ventura, if we've not met. Um, we are in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first three verses. I um, want to welcome our junior high students into the sanctuary this morning, the teaching. Love you guys. Um, the title for the sermon today is How Dead is Dead? Okay? And I, I'm not going to sugarcoat this as a gnarly passage. We're looking at the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. I will be reading uh, primarily from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, which will be displayed up here on the screens as well. So let's jump right in. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Church, this is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this moment where we can come together and we can worship You we can praise You, where we can, we can study and, and dive into Your Word. But God, we confess that, that this is only good because You are here. That Your, your Word is, is only beneficial to us by Your Holy Spirit's teaching and application. So we ask You, God, to author the very words that come from my mouth. Help us, Lord, as we hear. Open our ears. Open our hearts. Help us to receive the Word that You have for Your church this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, for the last at least 12 years, smartphones uh, have changed humanity. And it's not all been for the better either. Uh, there's been a lot of positive benefits and there's some trade-offs. I recently read an article, a very well-written article, about the ways that, that our, our mobile devices have changed our culture. And there's some primary, main areas that have changed already completely. For example, the, uh, the obvious one is communication. How we communicate. How we expect people to respond to communication. It seems like something that's, that's forever changing. Like it seems like no one responds to emails all of a sudden now. Everyone wants you to text. And there's a new app to communicate in. Ch communication has rapidly changed as has music. The music industry has completely changed. How I get my music, how I pay for my music, what I listen to, whose suggestions I listen to, all of that has changed. Uh, interpersonal relationships have drastically been changing. Uh, immediate access uh, to, to technology has, has caused a rift in close personal relationships. This, the magazine uh, Psychology Today reported this year this new term that they're using called techno-interference in marriage. Techno-interference is one of the top three reported strains on marriages in 2017. There are people who are being diagnosed, clinically diagnosed with depression and citing that the competition with a device in their marriage is one of the primary causes. Uh, it, Smartphones have changed our consumer behavior, what we buy, when we buy, how we buy. Self-promotion, the idea of self-promotion has totally changed the last 12 years. 15, 20 years ago, if you were walking around taking pictures of yourself and then showing them to friends, right, you would have looked like an idiot. <laughs> now in our culture, we do it all day. We put it all up online. 
And it's just like part of our cultural fabric to promote ourselves and to promote what, what it looks like when we have our best foot forward. How we get the news. What the news is. Addiction. The face of addiction has rapidly been changing in light of mobile technology. In 2017, the website Pornhub, which is like the biggest pornography website in the world, received 28.5 billion visits. That's a thousand visits per second. More than 4.6 billion hours of pornographic video were viewed in 2017. Okay, that means in 2017, there were 5,246 centuries worth of video that were viewed by billions of viewers. Guys, that is an addiction. We depend on our devices for better or for worse. California now provides free smartphones to people who qualify, low-income people who can't afford smartphones. So they're no longer a privilege. They're now becoming a human right. When we're on an airplane and the Wi-Fi goes down, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, people are getting ready to throw other people off of the plane. We've, we've lost the, you know, the, the, the majesty of being eight miles up, flying in a chair, going 500 miles an hour. It's like, if, if I can't watch YouTube, I'm going to flip out, right? totally lost perspective. We've, we're becoming a very entitled people, obviously, growing in entitlement with our devices, wanting to be connected at all times. And we so easily become entitled. Our, our culture has been referred to as a culture of entitlement, in fact. Now, I'm very familiar with entitlement. I'm, I'm a, an expert on entitlement, you might say. <laughs> as I was reading, I, I found three very familiar-sounding steps to becoming entitled. Step one is you receive something, and usually you receive it initially with gratitude. You're thankful for it. The second step is you get used to having that in your life, and you develop a routine. The third step is that the routine use leads us to feel that that thing is now deserved by right. Even though we received it with gratitude, it becomes a right. And in our culture of entitlement, it's very easy for us to confuse what we desire and what we deserve. We feel we deserve jobs that pay well and that, that are meaningful and fulfilling. We, have that, we, we are owed that. That is a right for us, we feel. We, deserve that we, we feel we deserve a flawless wife, someone who, without fault, right, who will tolerate all of my faults without saying a single word. Right? We, we're, we're entitled people looking for fantasy partners. Entitlement can affect the way we view the church. We want a, a convenient church experience. We want a, a convenient parking spot. We want hot coffee. We want our spot on the aisle near the back, no matter how creative our arrival time is, right? We want everything conveniently placed for us. I'm poking fun at that, right? Because we do have it pretty good. God's amazing, and He provides for many of these things for us every week. But my point is we have to be very careful to guard our hearts against entitlement thinking that we are somehow entitled to these things. Because when we consistently receive good things in life, we can fall into a sense of entitlement. And if we're not careful, our sense of entitlement can even define the way we approach God. I have found myself in the past thinking or feeling like the Lord will show me that like I'm becoming to a place where I feel like I deserve God's forgiveness. It's a, horrible, it's a horrible slap in the face when I see it. But I'm like, isn't that what God does? I take it for granted that God just forgives me. I mean, I'm really good at sinning. 
God's really good at forgiving. It seems like this perfect relationship, right? This perfect match. And so God's always just done that for me. Isn't that what I deserve? And so if we're not very careful, we can even grow entitled in our relationship with the Lord. Entitlement is birthed from a sense of justice within us. Things we feel like we deserve. We feel we deserve certain things. So entitlement wells up within us. And so this morning we're going to ask this question. It's a a question that the Apostle Paul is directing these three verses, these three sentences into. And that question is, what do we truly deserve? What do we, what are we entitled to? Now, when I ask this question, typically, I'm really mostly just wanting to talk about the good things that I deserve in life. But the Bible answers this question, what do I deserve? And it reveals both good things and hard things for us to consider. For example, the Bible says that we're created in God's image. So that means that we are entitled to dignity, respect, and relationships with others as being created in the image of God. That's what we were created for. But the Bible also points out, the other side of that coin is that we've sinned. It means that we all must be held accountable for our sin. We all acknowledge that we've done bad things. We all know that we're not perfect. And so our passage today reveals that the consequences for our sin is perhaps worse than we might imagine. It's a consequence for our sin is worse than maybe we've thought about in a long time. Some of us might be living with a sense of entitlement. It's so easy to fall into entitlement in our culture. And so today might be a good wake-up call for us as we look at what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's good for us to remember where our sin leaves us apart from the saving grace of God in Christ. It's good for us to recognize the extent of the damage that our sin has caused in our hearts. And it's good to be reminded of what it is that we truly deserve because of our sin apart from God. And so we're going to start by examining these three verses today, and we're going to look at the human condition apart from Jesus. Okay? This is brutal. It's going to be much worse than you might be thinking, okay? So we're going to take a look at this. There's seven things that Paul clearly outlines. Listen, this is, not only is it important and significant for us, it's actually vital for our faith. Because if we don't understand how sick we are apart from Christ, then we're not going to want to receive the, the crazy, drastic remedy that is offered to us in Christ. We have to know who we are and how sick we are to receive the remedy, to understand the appropriateness of the offer of salvation. And so, Ephesians 1, or excuse me, 2, verse 1. There's going to be seven things. The first thing we see, it says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. Point number one is apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Completely incapable of saving ourselves. Completely incapable of sparking spiritual life within ourselves, and we are completely incapable of saving others, and completely incapable of sparking spiritual life in others. I'm going to illustrate this with a story. Before I was married, by myself, it was getting dark, the middle of nowhere in Utah, and I see this suburban pulled over with a family on the side of the freeway. The family like huddled behind the suburban, so I, I pull over, and as I pull over in front of it, I see this big old deer up on the hood of the suburban. And, um, you know, I check inside real quick. The deer is, like, totally dead, not even moving. And I look inside, and I go to the back. And, and the dad's worried that the deer is going to, like, start kicking and thrashing. And so he's got his family in the safe spot. You know, they're all freaked out, too, uh, behind the car. And so I announced to the family that the deer is dead. 
And I'm like, hey, you know, the deer's dead. Let's go, let's go take care of, of the deer. And so the dad and I go to the front of the Suburban, and we're, we're going to start pulling the deer off. And this young teenage daughter comes up, like this junior high age girl. She comes up, and she's like, get up, like encouraging the deer. She's like, run away, hurry up, hop up. You know, and I'm thinking, like, did she not hear me say it was dead? Like, like it's in bed on the car or something? Like, it's, it's dead. Like, it, it can't get up. There's no motivational language that's going to help this deer right now, you know? There's no soul searching or finding itself that's going to bring it back to life. There was no willing that deer back to life. If you, could, if, if you could have willed that deer back to life, that little teenage girl would have had that thing f- like pulling Santa's sleigh, right? She wanted that thing to succeed and thrive. But that deer was dead on the hood of that suburban. And without Jesus, the Apostle Paul says that I am laid out dead on the hood of my own sin. Dead. No motivational self-help, existential self-realization is going to have any effect. I was dead apart from Christ. No amount of other people willing me to be saved could have helped, or my mom would have had me saved 20,000 times my whole life. I I was dead in my sin. No amount of thinking of a happy place or trying to do whatever I set my mind to do, pull myself up from my bootstraps, none of that ever helped me. The dead can only lay in death because the dead are incapable of picking themselves up and giving themselves life. In church, Paul is saying that before Christ, I was dead in my sins. Apart from Jesus, we aren't simply people who need encouragement. People who live apart from Jesus, they don't just need your kindness and generosity. People without the love and the joy and the hope of Jesus don't just need a pat on the back and some positive thoughts from Christians, how's that going to help them? That's like encouraging a dead deer off the hood of your car. See, this is very politically incorrect and socially impolite, perhaps, to say, but we almost hear that on our own, we're not morally neutral people, just choosing between wrong and right. And so it's actually morbid and wrong of us to just encourage someone who is dead in their sin to just behave better and act better, and somehow they'll be closer to God. That doesn't bring them closer to God. They're dead. On our own, apart from the saving love of God and Jesus, we're helplessly, hopelessly dead in our sin. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. But here's, here's what's happened in our culture, and even in our Christian culture, because this is a harsh Reality, and we're tempted to soften or dampen the harshness of this reality. And humanity, ever since the very beginning, has been trying to dampen the harshness of the reality of sin. And there's a lot in Christian culture that even tries to do that to this day. We see this as an ancient thing, trying to damper the reality of, of, of the effects of sin on our condition apart from Christ. We see it in Genesis chapter 2, in fact. Look at verse 15. It says, the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the one tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You will surely die. Now, wait a minute. That's like page two of the Bible, and God is clearly communicating now from the very beginning that sin only leads to death. In this first sin, we see the same truth that Paul is teaching the Christians in Ephesians, in in, in the book of Ephesians. And that is that when we reject 
God, but we seek his blessings apart from him, then we're disconnected from the source of life. We're disconnected from God himself. That was, that was the first sin of Adam and Eve. Now, Genesis, the book of Genesis is written in Hebrew, and, and there are no superlatives in Hebrew. That means in verse 17, there's no word for surely, where it says you will surely die. There's no superlatives in Hebrew. And so rather than using a separate word, because they didn't have them, ancient Hebrew simply repeats the word that our modern English emphasizes in a superlative. So Genesis 2.17 in Hebrew literally would read this way. It says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will die, die. Okay? That's, that's how they say it in Hebrew. And, and translators add the superlative because we have that in our language. But that's the emphasis. If you do this, you will die, die. In our sin, apart from God, right? Apart from life, in our sin, we may be physically alive, but we're spiritually dead and on our own because our sin separates us from God. In our sin, we die, die. In our sin, we are dead, dead, to speak ancient Hebrew to you. Later on, you guys know the story, the serpent comes to tempt Adam and Eve. And this is, this is curious. And Eve tries to quote God back to the serpent, right? And she says this. This is found in Genesis chapter 3. L- listen to how she says it. The woman says to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. You notice the difference there? She doesn't say you'll surely die. She doesn't say you will die, die. She's softening it. She simply says die, leaving it open to interpretation. She's not adamant about the degree of death. A bit like that teenage girl on the side of the road. Softening the idea of death. Maybe even to the point that might include the possibility of life. And so we see that Eve's first mistake is to soften God's response to sin. And listen, people have been trying to do this ever since softening God's response to sin. Well, God, God loves us. He doesn't really care about what we do. But Scripture is clear. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so Adam and Eve did sin, and they live a long physical life, but they live apart. They're thrown out of the garden. They live separated from God and eventually die. So apart from God, we see that we're spiritually dead. The second thing we see in our state, apart from God, is that apart from Christ, we are conformed to the patterns of of the world. We see that also in verse 1. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. Now, he's referring to kind of our baseline, what we think about life, what we think about ourselves, what we think about others, even what we think about God, just kind of our perceptions. Where is our baseline founded? This is a vital baseline because it it helps define our actions and, and set our hopes and our dreams and our goals. It's where we generate the template within us for what is right and wrong. It's where we get our sense of justice, like what's just and unjust, what's true and false. And so the Bible says we either have a a worldly perspective or a, a worldly baseline that's based on culture and the wisdom of the world, or we have a godly perspective and a godly baseline. As one author put it this way, David Wells, describing worldliness this way. He says, worldliness is a system of values in any given age, which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal 
and righteousness seem strange. In thus, it thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong. And for that, for that reason, it makes what is wrong seem normal. Now, what patterns exist in our culture that you can think of right off the top of your head? What patterns do we see in our culture where sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange? I can tell you one of them, right? Back to the tunnel of temptation when you're checking out at the grocery store, you know, with all the, all the gum that's like this high where all my kids just want to grab. The things, that aren't, the things that aren't that high, the things that are this high are what? Gossip and slander. It's just that the whole tunnel is, is wallpapered with gossip and slander. The Bible says the gossip is a sin, and, and so is slander. Talking about people behind their backs, being unwilling to confront them for the purpose of change and, and, and unity. That's gossip, and that's offensive to God. The Bible says it's a sin. Likewise, talking about others in a way that tears them down is slander. That's a sin. Now, not only are gossip and slander not seen as bad in our culture, gossip and slander are actually celebrated in our culture, aren't they? They're they're like a, a genre of entertainment in our culture. Slander is what keeps 24-hour news networks operating during the off hours when the news isn't on, right? Just people tearing each other down and talking about people. We, we, we feed on that. It's a part of our entertainment. You can't buy groceries without being tempted by gossip or slander. So it's no wonder we come by it so easily. It's no wonder we entertain it so much in our life passively. It's also no wonder that when we try to work on gossip and slander in our life that people are offended People get offended when I try to excuse myself from a conversation that's about others who aren't present. They, they, they get offended. People are actually offended when, when I decline a conversation. It seems impossible to advance in politics without engaging in slander. And sometimes it might seem like it's impossible to advance at work without engaging in slander. Another thing that the Bible clearly calls sin but is completely normal in this world is the idea of remaining a virgin before you're married or not having sex with someone until you're married. It seems absolutely insane to the world. It seems even foolish to the world. Well, how do you know you're compatible, you'll be asked. How do you know you'll get along? Why wouldn't you try that relationship out first? You try everything out first. Not just the car that you buy, but the sofa that you buy. The, every, you care so much about everything. Why wouldn't you try that out first? You see, Scripture clearly teaches that sex is not a commodity that can be separated from commitment. Sexual intimacy is a consummation of a union, the consummation of a covenant. That seems weird and crazy and foolish to the world we live in. It's completely counter to our culture. The patterns and the norms of the world do not align with Scripture. And the patterns and the norms of Scripture seem strange and out of place in the world. And we're all shaped, more or less, by the world that we live in. Some of us are shaped more by the world than, than we might even think. Much like a fish living in the water. A fish that's unaware that he's breathing in the water that surrounds him. The patterns of this world are like the air that we breathe sometimes. And if we're not very careful, the constancy of these worldly patterns, the constancy of these, of these ideas become normalized in our mind. Patterns of life become normalized. Ideas become normalized. Attitudes and behaviors become normalized. When we constantly sit in front of and submit ourselves and recreate and let ourselves go down, I'm just relaxing, I'm just, and we're absorbing and breathing in the culture around us, the constancy of these things 
we have to catch ourselves. I just know in my life, how often do I struggle with consumerism, obsession over consumerism even at times? How often do we catch ourselves immersed in an American brand of radical individualism, right? Just out for ourselves, searching only for opportunities to advance. We're taught that from a young age in our culture. Because apart from Jesus, we're conformed to the patterns of this world. That's our natural inclination, the Apostle Paul is saying. The third thing we see about ourselves, apart from Jesus, is that apart from Jesus, we are deceived by the devil. Paul says that you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the unseen world. Now, he's talking about Satan here. Apart from God, he's saying, we obey Satan. Now, Dom talked about a couple weeks ago, Satan doesn't actually have authority, but he does have influence. And apart from God, we're heavily influenced by the deceiving nature of Satan. The devil's plan from the very beginning is to get us to trust in ourselves rather than to trust in God. And when we trust in ourselves rather than trusting in God, what we're doing is following the devil's advice. And when we follow the devil's advice rather than God's advice, we are trusting him. When we follow his advice and trust ourselves rather than God, then we're believing his ancient lies. We find ourselves swept up into the same repetitive storyline that you see in the beginning of the book of Genesis. God is not sufficient. God is not the only good in the world. That you should try to get the blessings of God apart from the person of God. Those are ancient lies that we believe in and that we fall for. Paul is saying that we all, like Eve and Adam in the garden, we all have fallen for the same lie. We all have been deceived by the devil. We all have put our trust in ourselves over God. We all, therefore, Paul is saying, we've been deceived by Satan and separated from God. And if anyone is not under the redeeming power of God, they are under the enslaving power of God's enemy. It's pretty heavy, but it doesn't stop there. Okay, number four. The fourth thing we see, Paul is saying, is that we're born with a sinful condition. We're actually born into sin, the psalmist says in Psalm 51. Look at verse 3. It says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following in its desires and thoughts. Now, Paul mentions the word flesh, but he's not talking about our physical skin. Paul is talking about our sinful nature. He's saying that our nature, our natural state, apart from God, our flesh is opposed to God's will. That just by the way that we're born, we're opposed to God's will. And so, in other words, sin is not simply some acts, certain acts that we do from time to time. What Paul is arguing here with this, the, the words he's chosen, is that sin is a condition that shapes what we do all the time apart from God. It's not just acts of sin. It's who we are and how our life is formed apart from Christ. And Paul's saying that we don't just commit sins. He's saying we have a sinful nature. It's a, it's a disease in our hearts that shapes everything else in our life. That sin is, is the default mode of the human heart. And certainly we see the Bible tells us that sin is a sickness. It is a, a self-obsessed root that has grown into every one of our hearts. And this is why we want to do what is wrong. I, I hate that about myself. You, you may not have recognized that as sin, but that's what, that's what that thing is. That's our flesh that Paul is talking about. Apart from Jesus, we all want to do what is wrong. We, we all are like tempted in ways that we wouldn't consciously tempt ourselves. And, and we have to face these intense selfish or self-focused or self-exalting or self-benefiting or self-preserving thoughts and desires because 
We're born that way. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 19, he continues, he says, and this is the other side of the coin, he says, Just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. Okay, that's the other side of the coin. That's like the spoiler alert. But this is the doctrine of original sin, is what Paul is writing on. Simply stated, the doctrine of original sin teaches that we are born into sin. We are born as children of Adam. We inherit Adam's sinful nature. If people say, oh, that's not fair. That can't be true. Listen, I believe the doctrine of original sin is valid. I see it. I know it's true. I have evidence for it. You know why? Because I have kids. (laughs) The only people who think kids are innocent are people who don't have kids, right? (laughs) My kids are all cute and sweet and funny and kind, but there's plenty of evidence that they were all born with a sinful nature. Okay, I pick on Shem because he's our youngest and he doesn't even know right now, but he's four. He's, he's so cute with his curly hair. He looks like a little lamb. But listen, I never taught Shem how to lie. I never taught Shem how to steal from his siblings. I never taught Shem how to be totally consumed with himself. That kid was born that way, right? He was born with a natural proclivity to sin, unfortunately. The fifth thing we see is, Paul says, apart from Christ, we are slaves to bodily desires. Number five, we see this in verse three. It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. The cravings of our flesh. It's this wild, wide-ranging, wild influences on our life. Uh, Throughout the Bible, we see lists like in Romans that include lust, sexual craving, anger, rage, disgust, envy, jealousy, Uh, selfish ambition, on and on. The Greek word that Paul is using here, literally it means for for craving, it literally means passionately longing for or passionately craving and lusting for. And so what what he's saying is because of our sin, our behavior is addictive. We're like addicted to bad behavior. Our sinful condition apart from Jesus, uh, in that condition we long for things that are destructive. They're destructive to other people and they're even self-destructive. And we don't simply choose to satisfy these cravings. We are slaves to these desires and thoughts. We're addicted. We're, we're, we're in slavery. We see this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 19. Paul says, previously you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led even deeper into sin. That's heavy. Apart from Christ, we were slaves to sin, obeying the desires and the thoughts of the flesh. Apart from God, in other words, we are dead slaves. Dead slaves. That's a bad spot, okay? (laughs) That's a a bad spot because we are dead. We're conformed to the world. We're deceived by Satan. We're born into sin, even slaves to sin. Paul continues in our passage today. He says, we are also skewed in our thinking. This is the sixth point. Remember, there's only seven. Hang in there. We're almost there. Apart from Christ, we are skewed in our thinking. It says in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, right? We're 
addicted to sin, and following its desires and thoughts, literally thought patterns or patterns of thought. Our sin doesn't just affect what we believe. Our sin also affects the way we think. It affects our motivations. What am I motivated by? And how often are we motivated by insecurity? How often in life are we motivated by fear or jealousy or pride? Our deadness and our worldliness and our slavery to sin, it causes us not to think right. We don't think right about life. We don't think right about being created in the image of God. We don't think right about the fact that we were created for more than just suffering as dead slaves to sin. And so in order for us to see a clear picture of our hearts apart from God, we need to look at what motivates us. And the non-Christians that you know, what motivates them? What's, what's behind their decision process? Because I'll be honest with you, maybe too honest, maybe TMI for you, but even when I do good things, often it's tainted by bad motivations. Even the good things I do, not just the bad things I do. Like we might give money to someone so we feel better about ourselves. Or we might serve in a ministry so that we get seen by other people, right? Like we could just go to bed at night going, oh, now people know that I'm the kind of person that does that. Now people know that I'm the kind of person that gives my time in that way. See, I mention all this stuff because it's true of all of us that our sin goes even deeper than we might be willing to admit. It even, it even works its way, if we're not very careful, into the good things we try to do apart from Christ. Our sin goes deeper than we may be willing to look at. And so the seventh aspect of our condition, apart from Jesus, it really is kind of the culmination of the sinful condition. So I'm going I'm to list this out just so we can remember. The first thing we looked at is, apart from Jesus, we're spiritually dead. Number two, apart from Jesus, we're conformed to the patterns of this world. Number three, apart from Jesus, we're deceived by the devil. Number four is we're born with a sinful condition. Number five is, apart from Jesus, we're slaves to bodily desires. Number six is, apart from Jesus, we're skewed in our thinking. And then finally, number seven is, apart from Jesus, we are under the judgment and wrath of God, right? As as if the first six weren't heavy enough. Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, entitled to the wrath of God. Sin is not just making a mistake here or there. Sin is an offense to God. God is holy and just, and He will not, He cannot tolerate injustice. That is who God is. And that is why, apart from Christ, our sin separates us from God. God cannot intolerate injustice. Now listen, that actually is a good thing. Who would want to trust a God who smiles at or ignores wickedness? It's a good thing that God is opposed to wickedness. Who would want to know a God who is indifferent to offenses against himself or who is indifferent to offenses against his people? That's not a good God. God wouldn't be good if he tolerated injustice, if he tolerated evil, if he tolerated crimes against children, if he tolerated crimes against humanity, kind of looking the other way. We want a just God, don't we? We, we want God to be just. We want God to be good in all of his ways. And here's something I've noticed about myself, though, I'll confess to you. I strongly appeal to the justice of God when I've been wrong, right? Like, God, bring your justice, like maybe in the form of lightning or something, right? Like just right now. Do you see what they did to me? But I conveniently forget or skip over God's righteous anger and justice when I'm the one who's in the wrong. And I go straight to the grace of God, right? God is always just. 
God is always holy. And His just and holy response to sin is judgment. The only right way to deal with sin is to judge it. And not ignore it. You can't sweep it under the carpet. And God is a good judge. He's a righteous judge. He's, he's an impartial judge. God is a judge. We should be celebrating God and praising Him for His fairness and His justice because He's 100% pure in His justice. He's unlike the judges of this world even. He doesn't make a mistake. As well, it's good that He's a good judge. What that means is apart from Jesus, humanity, you and me even, apart from Jesus... We're in a bad spot. We're spiritually dead, and we're forever separated from God. This means that the comparison games that we play, striving to feel good about ourselves by comparing ourselves to others, the comparison games that we play, it's just a fantasy happening in our mind. We can't justify our true self by comparing ourselves to someone else, right? Like, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as they are. I never took things that far right? Whoa, he, he cheated the IRS for millions of dollars? I've only done that for a few thousand dollars, right? Like these comparison games we have to help ourselves feel better, to kind of shore up the good things we've done, they, they don't mean anything because God is a just judge. He's righteous. Scripture reminds us from the beginning to end, Romans 3.23 in particular puts a fine point on it. It says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, some people are offended by this fact especially in our culture. They, they're like, man, Christianity is just, they're so negative. They're just always looking at the negative. I choose to be more positive. And they say things like this, I think people are mostly good. Or I think there's good in everybody. They're like, seriously, then why did you lock your door when you left the house today? Right? Why did you like double check your car alarm? Why do you go to the other side of the street when someone you don't know is coming at you at night? Why do you guard yourself in relationships? Why? Because you've been hurt by other people. Because people are not inherently good. We all eventually learn that people have a tendency to hurt us. Or other people, they, 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 they deal in relativism, meaning that, that they, they believe in moral relativism. People are re responsible for defining their own ethical truth. And they say stuff like this, well, right and wrong is in the eye of the beholder. What's right for me may not be right for you. What's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. Now, if, if you've ever been tempted by this reasoning, you need to remember, just step back and, and look at where that will lead us. Look where that would lead a people group, any people group. Following that logic means that people like Adolf Hitler would be able to leave, lead other like-minded people without interference. Because what's right for him may not seem right to me, but if, if moralism is really relative, following this reasoning, we lose the ability to enforce any parameters on justice or decency in society. Following this reasoning actually enables and empowers injustice in the world. People want to talk about justice, social justice, social justice. Our culture is not moving towards social justice. Our culture is moving toward moral relativism, which enables and empowers injustice in the world. The world is broken. And to not acknowledge the brokenness of the world is both contrary to Scripture, but it's also naive to the reality of all of history. The story of all of history is the story of a broken humanity attempting peace, right, which is a blessing from God. But they're attempting peace apart from God. 
And they just descending. We're descending into brokenness, striving, descending into conflict, descending into violence, descending into world wars, descending into genocide and famine, descending into eventually like 24-hour threat of nuclear annihilation. Yeah, there's good moments in the world, but that's, they're scattered amongst the brokenness of humanity's story apart from God. Humanity as a whole is attempting to seek the blessings of God apart from a relationship and submission to God. That might seem harsh to you. It might seem harsh to place such a fine point on humanity's helpless state, but listen, it is true. That, that, that's just the truth about humanity. And when someone is very sick, like humanity is, the only right response is to properly diagnose the condition, to thoroughly diagnose the condition. That's the only right way to treat it. How else do you treat someone who is direly ill without knowing what they've got? And so not telling sick people that they're sick because we're afraid of being hurtful, it's not kind of us, nor is it helpful, nor is it loving. Not telling someone that they're very ill would be cruel and unloving and wicked. And See, God loves us, and so he shows us our spiritual sickness so that he can offer us the remedy. God shows us this as an act of grace. God exposes things so that he can heal them. And God exposes sin. He exposes our wounds. He exposes our bitterness so that he can heal all of it. He wants to breathe life into our death. God doesn't just get a kick out of bringing us low. He doesn't just show us our brokenness to shame us or to cause us to grovel. God brings us low so that we can turn from sin and be healed. And God meets us in our brokenness and in our stuckness, the places where we feel just stuck, and he heals us and he sets us free. He unsticks us. This doesn't make much sense, but so there we have it. Apart from Jesus, we're spiritually dead, conformed to the patterns of this world, deceived by the devil, born with a spirit with a sinful condition, we're slaves to bodily desires, skewed in our thinking, and apart from Jesus, we're under the judgment and the wrath of God. On our own, we are hopeless. On our own, we are helpless. On our own, we are dead, dead. I just invite the worship team up, right? No, I'm just kidding. We've taken an honest look at our sinful condition. And look, it's, it's worse than you might have thought. But the story doesn't end here, and the sermon doesn't end here. The next part of our passage reveals that our sin and our deadness is not the end of the story. After giving this devastating diagnosis that we're dead in our sins, Paul goes on in verse 4 to say two powerful words. Listen, if you're dead in your sin today apart from Christ, you need to, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but you need to hear the first two words of verse 4. Paul says, but God. But God. Yeah, praise God. Because you, you can't enter the kingdom of God as a dead person. Only the spiritually living are a part of God's kingdom. Now, it is kind of a spoiler alert because we're going to dive headlong into that passage next week. But God does not want to leave us dead in a grave. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to live perfectly and pay the penalty for our sin, dying on a criminal's cross. The one who lived perfectly died as the worst sinner of all. And then God gives himself places himself as a lifeless corpse in a tomb. 
God has been where you are. If, if you're not in Christ today, you need to know God has been where you are. He is pursuing you, longing to exchange your dead life for new life. This is the only good news there is for the dead. This is the gospel. You can be born again in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can bring the dead back to life. He's the only one in all of humanity, all of history, that predicted his own death, predicted his own resurrection, pulled it off. Only Jesus can offer true forgiveness of, the, of sins. He's the only perfect man that died in your place for your sins. Only Jesus can set you free from slavery to sin. Only Jesus can breathe life into spiritually dead lives. We were once all in the slave market of sin, but God, our Father, loved us so much that he paid the price for us with the life of his Son. Jesus not only sets us free from the slave market, he gives us new life. He doesn't only give us new life. He brings us to God. He brings us back into the garden, back into relationship with God, restoring that which was broken in ancient history. God adopts us into his family as his own children. So receiving God's gift of salvation and receiving God's gift of life brings us into his family as his own kids. As God's ki- in God's kingdom, we are his children, his very own children welcomed into the presence of God, loved into the family of God, enjoyed by the Father as children of God. And so while the diagnosis of our condition in our sin apart from God is worse than you might have imagined, listen, it is also true that God's remedy is much better than you ever could have hoped or imagined for. If you are in Christ today, Christian, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in that journey that God has brought you on from death to life. Today, if you find yourself dead in a grave, just know that Jesus went into a grave to pull you out of yours. Come to Jesus today. Receive his gift of salvation. Exchange your grave for new life. Your Father is calling you into his family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you, God, for your incredible love for us that did, that found us as corpses, dead, like that deer on the hood of the car, dead. Your love finds us dead, pulls us out of the grave, and gives us new life. Thank you, Father, for for seeing how desperate our condition is, for not being afraid to show us how how desperate we are. And then, God, for you to be willing to go all the way into the grave as a corpse in order to rescue us from our grave, God. This morning, we respond in worship. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict and move hearts. Today would be a day of celebration and worship for the believer, and today would be a day of salvation for those who are not in Christ. The day is yours. We love you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. The communion elements are up here. If you want to remember the sacrifice, remember that exchange of, of, of a life for a dead life. The communion elements are up here. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to participate. Prayer team is up here. They're ready to, to pray for you. They're, they're ready to pray for you. If you're making a decision to, to receive Jesus, to receive the, the love of God through the sacrifice of Christ, come up and get prayer. These guys would love to pray for you. Let's respond in worship as led by the Holy Spirit this morning.